second first thing you heard was ah like we we're gonna play the whole movie for you here this morning wow if if you need a bible raise your hand we are going to be in exodus chapter 14 we are going to be going over the crossing of the red sea here this morning and uh, i had to show you that that's just a classic for one and um uh and you know cecil b demille um, when he uh, when he first uh, started doing this, he he um, he did a lot of research, and and you'll notice he did not buy into the the Reed Sea you know theory that the the water was kind of shallow and and just going through the Reed Sea. No, he actually believed it was the Red Sea, and he was correct. You know, he is correct. And so this movie was, I think, in 1952. I believe it was, and that wasn't the first time that he did this movie. He did it back in 1927, 1937, something like that. The first Ten Commandment movie uh, came out then, and he redid it like 20 years later, 30 years later. The interesting thing about cinema is, is that when cinema first began, the stories that were being told were Bible stories. The antithesis at the same time, other stories that were told were pornography. So when cinematography came along, they saw two avenues to take. It was interesting how they took the biblical and then the, the, the wicked people took the other, pornography. And so the reason I bring that up is because technology can be used for good, for God's purposes, or it could be used for evil. But the technology itself is amoral, okay? It, it has no soul. It can do no evil or good. But people can take it and make it evil or good. And so technology, when it comes our way, we need to be looking at it as a way to be able to use that for the glory of God. And so you had people like Cecil B. DeMille that wanted to be able to use it for the purposes of God. When you go back and you actually take a class, I remember doing this back at Oregon State that I took a cinematography class and, and early cinema, and, they, and, and most of the stories that were coming out were stories of the Bible as well as the macabre, like Dracula, Frankenstein, things like that. And so, again, you just kind of see where people are of how, man, I could bring this for the glory of God, and, pe- and other people going, oh, let's get creepy, you know? And so, uh, so again, um, I love that. And as much as I would like to see a remake of it, I wouldn't want to see a remake of it because I really like... Uh, the, the Ten Commandments that, that he did. It, it's uh, really good. The, the overacting is amazing. It's just <laughs> wonderful. 
you know, and all that. It's just, it's, it's great, you know, it's great. So, um, so, okay, so we're here in chapter 14. We're going to finish this out here this morning, Lord willing. And so, um, when you go through God's word, the events that we come across in God's word, and especially the event here that we're going to see here in the book of Exodus here, is that we come to these places of great excitement. The, the parting of the Red Sea is one of them. And so we get to see God show himself with great power and miraculous power and wonderful display of power. And here in Exodus, we see Moses before the burning bush, which is kind of fun and exciting. And we get to see the 10 plagues of Egypt. And then we have this great event of the parting of the Red Sea, where God then gets to destroy Pharaoh's army as well. And from this point on, it seems that whenever the servants of the Lord want to remind the people of God's amazing power, they always go back to the Red Sea. There's always a reference to the Red Sea. We see this in Isaiah 51, 15. Even God himself brings us back to that. He says, but I am the Lord, your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. Even God himself will bring as a reminder to his people, remember what I did back then. I'm still that same God. He never changes. In Nahum 1, verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. In Psalm 106, verse 7, it says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated him, them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. In Joshua 24, verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with the chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. So we see in the Old Testament how God and and his prophets would always bring it back to the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea to show God's great power, okay? We also see it in the New Testament. Stephen, before he is stoned before the Sanhedrin, gives a history of the people, and he says in Acts 7, verse 36, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Again, reminding people of what God did at the Red Sea. In Hebrews eleven twenty nine, it says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempt to do so were drowned. So many times in the Old and New Testament, God would show his power and greatness by referring back to the Red Sea. So it's a very, very significant event in the lives of God's people because it shows the awesome power and faithfulness of God destroying their enemy, Egypt. God bring them out of bondage into a covenant relationship with him. So we left off with Israel kind of camped out on the beach there by the Red Sea. We discovered last week it's the Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, before them is, is that great sea before them. And the mountainous area filled with gorges was behind them. Uh, Pharaoh has now changed his mind and is now coming with his army to bring the Israelites back to Egypt as their slaves. And so we left off on verse 10 uh, where it says, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us 
up out of Egypt. And so we mentioned last week that remember what was leading them this whole time. Out of Egypt, through the wilderness there, into the beachhead that they're at right now before they're going to cross over, not knowing that they're going to cross over, but this is where God has led them. It was this amazing pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of cloud of fire by night. So they had this manifest presence of God before them as they're going through and now has kind of dropped them there on the beach, is still there at the beach with them. And yet they're able to see this little dust up behind them. Through the the wadi, the valley, they see this dust up and then they get word that it's Pharaoh's army coming after them. And instead of looking at this great magnanimous cloud, they're looking at itty bitty Pharaoh over here coming with his army. And so they cry out to God, but then they cry out to Moses. And you have all these snarky comments. You know, oh, there wasn't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Okay, first off, he's not the one that brought you. The pillar of cloud, but he's just following the cloud. He's following God. God brought you to that place. And and remember what Egypt represent. What what did they pour their money into? The big tombs and things like that. It spoke of death. They, they, They relished the afterlife and death afterwards. And they were so focused on that. Why'd you bring us out here? There's not enough graves. You can see the sarcasm involved with that. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. And so we left it off last week with that question. Is it better to be safe and in bondage or to have difficulties and be able to freely worship God? I believe that 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 will be a crossroads for every single one of us. I think that we're always going to be looking at a situation where we go, is it better to be safe but in bondage or to be, able to, be, to be able to freely worship God even though there's some difficulties? And I think it is better to be able to be free and worship God with difficulties. And so we went over that last week. So who led the Jews to the edge of the sea with no means of escape? God did. The pillar of cloud is there. God's presence led them there. This is Israel's first trial since leaving Egypt. So did Israel really think God brought them all the way out from Egypt only to let them die right then and there? Some of them did. Most of them did. So this begs the question, how do you view God in the midst of difficulty? How do you view God in the midst of difficulty? We have to have this correct view of God in the midst of difficulty. In viewing the difficulty, we have to look through it with the lens of God. As opposed to looking at God through the lens of the difficulty. Which is what we usually do. You see the difficulty, you see the situation, you see the circumstance. You, you, You see what's right in front of you. You need to take a breather. And you need to be go, well, wait a minute. God is a God who created the heavens and the earth. He is this big, magnanimous God. And then there's the difficulty. We need to be able to see the, lens, the, the difficulty through the lens of the person of God. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Pharaoh's army's coming right now. They're going to kill us. Big cloud of God's presence. He's right there with you. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? There's no difficulty too great for a God And the greater the difficulty, the greater the opportunity for God to show himself. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? No, there isn't. There's nothing too hard for him. And so we have to lay hold of that truth. And so with your freedom in Christ... 
in your freedom to be able to worship God, guess what? Difficulties are going to come for this reason always. To develop you. To become Christ-like. To show the genuineness of your faith. Because I think we've all come to the place in our walk with the Lord where we fail in some of these areas. And then we kind of go, man, Lord, I really do believe. And, and, and we're, we, we kind of want to be like the guy that comes to Jesus. Can you, can you help my son? You know, he's demon-possessed. It throws him in the fire. And the Lord looks at him and says, do you believe? And he says, yes, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief. Man, if there's not a day that I can't say that. Lord, I believe, but man, I am a little nervous about this. You know, I really do believe, but this is kind of scary. I'm trying to look at it through the lens of, of you. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Such an honest, transparent prayer. It's one of my favorite things, you know. Uh, I love that prayer. I love the, the, the areas in Scripture where you see great transparency with that supposed man of God, that woman of God, you know. And, and they just kind of lay it all out there. And I love this man for his honesty. I do believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. I'm not all there yet, and none of us are, and none of us are. In 1 Peter 1, 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. Really? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. I got to tell you, I'm not, not having a really good batting average when it comes to a various trial that the first thing I do is I greatly rejoice. I got to tell you, I'll get to that place. But it's not the first thing that's out of my mouth. Praise God for this trial. But these people greatly rejoice. Though for now, it's just a little while. If need be, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what's being said there? Is that when trials come, it's an opportunity What's it an opportunity for? To show the genuineness of your faith. It's to show that you're going to look at this trial through the lens of God. How awesome is that? What a great opportunity. You know, when the world talks about opportunities, it's usually an opportunity for your flesh. It's usually an opportunity in order for you to go up in the corporate ladder to get a raise. Oh, this is a great opportunity. You'll be able to make more money. Hey, this is a great opportunity. But the world's opportunities is something that that appeals to the flesh. God's opportunity usually is an opportunity for you to grow in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why these trials that you're going through, it's to show the genuineness of your faith. It's an opportunity. But do we look at them that way? We got to see what is going on through the lens of, of the person of God. In Philippians 4.19, it says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Everything you're going to need to go through that, he'll, he'll supply it. He'll supply it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. Let that ring. How often I've had people come to me and say, Dave, you don't understand. What I'm going through, no human being has ever gone through before. <laughs> what? You don't get, no, 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 no. Let's, let's back up. Whatever you're going through, common to men and women. Common. Whatever you're going through, others have gone through it. And that's why we are here together. This is why we do not forsake the assembly of the brethren. As iron sharpens iron, so is a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. We need each other. We glean from one another. And I guarantee you there is somebody that has gone through whatever you're going through. And it'd be great to be able to, to, to kind of like pair you up with them because they've gotten through it. No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's a road. There's a, there's a journey through this. That God has already, you're in this situation. Got it. It's a trial. Got it. 
There is a road for you to get through. God has provided it for you. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Father, I just ask him, just give me the strength to get through this. He will. But he also wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think as you go through it. According to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Every trial, every difficulty that you go through, Father, that it might bring you glory. Somehow show me how as I go through this that it will be able to bring you glory. And I'll tell you one of the ways is because people are watching. They're watching you go through it. And they're watching if you're going to whine and complain and give up as you go through it. Or you'll be able to have the strength that you quickly admit that you were wrong and how you were maybe portraying the trial or whatever. And now all of a sudden they see the joy of your salvation carry you through this, through the person of Jesus Christ, to be able to bring God glory, to be able to prove the genuineness of your faith. And as you go through it, guess what? You have grown up that much more in the person of Jesus Christ. And you're becoming more Christ-like. And that's exactly what God wants to do in every single one of our trials. He wants to develop us to be like his son. In Matthew 16, 24, it says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Just understand that this is what is going to be required for every single trial that you go through, a denial of self. A denial of self. You want to follow Christ? As we say just about every week, narrow is the gate, difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. Once you come through that gate, what is going to be required of you as a follower of the person of Jesus Christ is going to require self-denial. Dave, I just seem to be denying myself all the time. Great. You're going to get that much closer to the Lord. Okay, I mean, because that is what's required of us, to love God, love others. Denial is going to be needed. This is what's going on with Israel right now. They need to learn to trust God, so then God will continue to put them in situations where they can choose to trust God or react in the flesh. They have that choice before them. Pillar of cloud right here. His presence is before them. They could choose to put their eyes on the the presence of God right there, or they can choose to look at the army and then say snarky things to Moses, which is what they chose to do, okay? And so they chose instead to be fearful, and then when you're fearful, you have a tendency to kind of lash out, and they begin to blame their leader Moses. And in choosing to be fearful, they rebel. In Psalm 106, 7, we had read this earlier. Our father in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And this is how how they're doing it. And we're going to see it also speaks of other things that happen once they're on the other side and things like that. But understand what fear is. Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. And God will bring you into many difficulties that look very, very scary to see if you're going to choose to be fearful or to have faith. Because when you have faith in him, it will cast out the fear. The fear will be gone. Because you'll remember who dwells inside of you, that he is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. The opposite of faith is fear. This is why Moses would say in verse 13, and Moses said to the people, what's the first thing he says? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You see the wisdom here? Do not be afraid. Does fear ever help? 
I'm so glad I was fearful in that situation so I could make that decision. What? When has fear ever made a good decision? You know? So again, fear, it, it never helps. It just makes us more miserable. It makes us anxious. It makes us more stressful. I want you to go to Isaiah 44. Go to Isaiah 44. Here in Isaiah 44, in the first seven verses, deals with God restoring Israel. It talks about the restoration of Israel, okay? Because he is God and no one else is, okay? Only God can do that. And it speaks about uh, uh, the, the future restoration of Israel that God is going to do. And then verses 6 through 23 speak of the foolishness of idolatry. If God is the one that can do these things, if God is the one that, that can do all things, then how silly it is to worship idols that can do nothing, Okay, that can do nothing. So God starts out here in verse 6 of his superiority. All right? He's the one that's going to restore Israel. And so in verse 6 it says this. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Yahweh of hosts, God's army. Look what he says. I am the first. I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. It's only him, the one who created the heavens and the earth. It's the only God that there is. How foolish to try and go after something else that is not a God. The first and the last speaks of time. It speaks of the beginning of creation, which also speaks of the beginning of human history. Last means the end of human history. It's interesting, he calls himself the first and the last three times, all in the book of Isaiah. He says this in Isaiah 41.4, he says it here in 44 verse 6, as well as verse 48 verse 12. The final division of this book of Isaiah speaks of the servant of Yahweh, who is seen as the suffering Messiah. It's interesting in the book of Revelation... The Messiah is no longer suffering. Instead, he is glorified. And it is here three times that we see that the servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, Jesus, also calls himself the first and the last in Revelation 1.17, in Revelation 2.8, Revelation 22, verse 13. Thus showing that the Messiah, Jesus, is Yahweh, the first and the last. Verse 7 of Isaiah 44 says, And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it, set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Verse 7 is declaring that Yahweh, God himself, is the one that controls all events of history. He's on the throne He's always been on the throne. He's never not been on the throne. Is this the God that you believe in? Verse 8. Because he is the God who is the first and the last and controls all events of history, verse 8. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Why? He's with you. This is the God that you believe in. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's just told you. He's the reason for everything. He is the first and the last. He controls it all. He's on the throne. You're one of his children. Therefore, do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? We're going to see what that time is. You are my witnesses because you are his you're his children you are his witnesses is there a god beside me no there's not indeed there's no other rock i know not one so again because he's just declared who he is he's been there from the beginning and and know that you know he's the one that created time all right this is why when people say where'd god come from 
And that's usually how they say it, really smarmy like that. Where did God come from? Say, well, that's, that's a good question. It's a very good question. But you have to understand, when you say, where did God come from? You're saying that there was a beginning for him. Well, beginning only happens in time. Okay, outside of time, there is no beginning, there is no end. In order to have a beginning, that's when time began. And so, and when you read in the very first ver- verse, you know, that... that um, uh, if you go over here to Genesis 1, it, it basically tells everything right then and there. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right there it says, in the beginning, God created. Well, if God created in the beginning, he created time. All right? The heavens and the earth, that's, that is now space, and that's now matter. Okay? In the beginning, all at one time, space, time, and matter were all created at the same time. Dave, how do you know that? I know that because if time wasn't created first, or if time wasn't created at that same time, when was the matter placed there? Okay? If there's time, space, and matter, okay, and, and uh, you know, you have time, space, and matter, and then space wasn't uh, created at the time that matter was, where would you place it? These all had to happen at the same moment. And who's the one that did it? God. So he created time, space, and matter, which tells us he's outside of time, space, and matter, which means there is no time where he comes from and no way that you can then bring it into he must have been made at a certain point. No, that happens in time. And he created time. He's outside of time. It's a different dimension. It's called eternity. And that's where we go when we die, putting our faith in him. And so he's outside of that. And so to think that he was created means that he's inside. It's kind of like the person who made the computer is not in the computer. He's outside of that. And so this linear thing called time, God's outside of that. And so that takes away that, that thought of where, where did he come from? He didn't come from anywhere. To come from someplace means that it has to be somewhere in time. You have a beginning, you have an end. That only happens in time. He's outside of that, so he has no beginning, and he will have no end. Does that make sense? I think I explained it better when I went through Genesis 1-1. You can always go back to that if you... I spent a little bit more time on that, okay? Now I want you to go to Genesis 12. Because remember in verse 8 it says, Have I not told you from that time of who he is and what he's done and things like that? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, if you head back over here... This is when God calls Abraham. And he's calling Abraham to have a special relationship, covenant relationship for himself as well as all his descendants, which are the chosen people. Here in verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're going to have this relationship. You're going to be my chosen people and all your descendants that come from me. In, uh, when the Lord speaks to Isaac, um, Abraham's son, he tells him in, in Genesis 26, verse 24. Go over there. Just shoot over here. Just a couple more chapters here. Verse 20, chapter 26. Verse 24, the Lord appears to Isaac, and it says here in verse 24 of chapter 26, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Look what it says. Do not fear. Why? For I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And then, going back here to Exodus 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Why? I would submit to you from the very beginning because you are God's chosen people. You're part of his family. That is why you do not need to fear. In Isaiah 41.10, it says, fear not. He's speaking to the children of Israel. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Those who claim God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God that the word of God talks about, if that is your God, 
You have nothing to be afraid. Nothing to be afraid. And the reason you have nothing to be you're his children. Now, guess what? In John, verse 12 of chapter 1 of John, we're told this, but as many as received him, meaning Jesus, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, to those who believe in his name. See, when you are part of the family of God, you do not need to be afraid. Because he is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. When you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. We went over this last week. And you become a child of God. And as a child of God, he is your God, your Father. And you have nothing to fear. This is why in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. Why? Because we're part of his family. That's why. But of power, love, and a sound mind. When you see things through the lens of God who is with you and in you, you do not fear. Instead, you see the power that you have through the Holy Spirit that God has given you. You see how you're supposed to be able to love others because you're loving him and he first loved you. And it gives you a sound mind. And instead of looking at a trial and, and going, what's, what's wrong? What did I do wrong? What, what's happening? It's kind of like, no, I see it through the lens of God who will never leave me or forsake me, that I'm his child, and he's going to use this to develop me to be more Christ-like. And so they have everything there around them. Hello, look at the pillar of cloud. It's right in front of you. Moses tells them, do not be afraid. And then what does he say? Stand still. It could also mean, shut up. (laughs) Could. Just paraphrasing. They're so scared that they want to run away. He says, stand still. Be quiet. And watch the salvation of the Lord. Remember who's saying this. This is Moses. Mr. Drama Queen himself. Look how much Moses has grown in his faith. This is the same guy who cowered in his responsibility to God's being God's spokesperson right there before at the burning bush. Oh, get someone else. I don't speak well. You're making a mistake, God. You know, same Moses who also said, I told you so to God when he said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? He goes and speaks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes things harder for the people of Israel. And he goes back, I told you so. Why'd you do this? This is the same Moses. I've done that. I play the drama queen all the time. I wind the Lord with I told you so's. And yet God is so loving. He's so patient. He's so gracious. He's so merciful with me. He waits for me to, you know, put down my skirt and walk with him. You know, it's like, are you, are you done, Nancy? Are you done, little girl? Are you done being a little hysterical little girl? Are you ready to trust on me? You know, I don't know. I sometimes feel that's how he speaks to me. It might not be, might be filtered through my own, you know. Um, but Moses has grown in his faith and now Israel must grow in their faith as well. And so Moses is showing his faith you know, which is awesome. It's showing how he has grown through this in in his time with the Lord. Now it's time for Israel to be still and know that he is God, okay? So here, going back here to Exodus 14, verse 13, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Stand still. You know, this is often the Lord's direction to believers in time of crisis. You know, don't, don't be despaired. Don't be cast down. Stand still. Kind of collect yourself a little bit. Pray is always a good thing. But stand still and recognize that God is with you. And try and see what's happening through that lens. Fear will tell you to retreat. Impatience will tell you to do something now and foolish. Presumption will tell you to jump into the Red Sea before it parted, okay? Yet as God told Israel, he often tells us to simply stand still, hold your peace, 
try and reflect that God is with you and watch and listen to what it is that he wants you to do next. And in other words, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I believe that's exactly what happened when they went through the Red Sea. I believe that their strength was renewed as they see the sea parting and then Moses leading the charge. You know, I believe they mount up with the wings of eagles. I believe that there was a little giddy up in their step. Okay. And they ran and they weren't weary. And they walked and no one was faint. No one was faint. If you weigh on the Lord, you're going to see something amazing happen. And that's what the Israelites got to see here. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. That statement, why do you cry to me? There's a time to pray. There's a time to act. God's saying that is God now teaching Moses a lesson in the sense of going, look, there is a time to pray. There's a time to seek me, but there's also a time to act, okay? And that time is going to be now. It's going to be now. There are, there are some people that um, we already know what the word of God says. We just need to do it. And, and there's some people that say, well, let me pray about it. But you, you don't need to pray about it. God's word says to repent of that sin. Yeah, well, I still want to seek a minute. There's nothing to seek. You're in sin. He says to repent. That's the action to take place. It's not going back and reflecting more and this and that. There's a time to do, all right? And so right now is the time that that God is is, uh, teaching Moses. Now's the time to do something, okay? And so it says in verse 16, But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So now he's telling him of what he's going to do what Moses is going to do and then it says and and then he's going to say and this is what I am going to do so uh, God has already spoken to Moses and already told him that look you're going to go and um, uh, you're going to go through the wilderness you're going to follow me but I want you to know something I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's going to come after you so seeing Pharaoh's army that that that's no surprise to him he knew that he was going to come he knew that okay and so So again, um, he knew that they were going to come. Now, he's telling them something further. I'm the one that hardened his heart. They had a desire. Once you guys all left, they wanted to come and get you. I hardened his heart to just carry out what he already wanted to do. So now he's going to see the parting of the Red Sea. He's going to see this cloud that's, that's separating him from the Israelites. And you would think that would probably be enough. And he's going to say, yeah, I'm not, not going any further. But in his heart, even though they're getting away, he still has a desire to go get them. And so God strengthens his heart. So he's going to go into the Red Sea in order to destroy him so he can get the honor. In verse 17, again, it says, I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, his horsemen. Uh, And then uh, again, he's going to harden their heart. It's so God can gain honor and glory and they will all know that he is God. He is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Verse 19, and the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So now you have the cloud uh, in front of them as well as behind them to protect them, okay? And we're told that this is the angel of God. Now, we went over this in great detail in our Exodus study on March 18th and 19th of this year, and it's Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2a. That's as far as we got. Because we just jumped into the angel of the Lord and, and, and things like that. We know that the title angel of the Lord occurs 56 times in the Old Testament as well as we see the angel of the Lord also referred to as the angel of God five times. Here we have one of them. And the angel two times and the angel of his presence one time. And that always speaks of the second person 
of the Trinity. And we went in, like I said, great detail of that. It's called the Christophany. What we have here with the angel of God is a Christophany. It comes from two Greek words, Christos, which means Christ, Phaneru, which means to be revealed or manifest. Therefore, Christophany is a, is a visible manifestation or appearance of Christ before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And sometimes he looks like a man. Sometimes he looks like a burning bush. Sometimes he looks like this pillar of cloud by, by day and, and, and uh, fire by night. But that all speaks about the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So in verse 20, it says, So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. So now Pharaoh and his army can only go so far. They have this big cloud that's there that's going to bring nighttime to them but the cloud that's covering israel and in front of israel brings light it brings light it says so it came between the camp of the egyptians and the camp of israel thus it was a cloud and darkness to one and it gave light by night to the other so the one did not come near the other all that night so as pharaoh comes up with his army and everything there's a cloud there and now puts them in complete darkness and it stops them from being able to go in and harm the Israelites in their camp. But it also covers Israel, and it's also in front of Israel, and it's a light to them. It's a light to them. I find this very, very interesting, that what brings light to the Israelites brings darkness to Pharaoh. The same cloud that brings light in darkness brings darkness to Pharaoh and his army, and it's the same today. God's words enlightens God's people. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. We read this in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 says, Therefore, this is Paul speaking, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom, revelation of the knowledge of him, the eyes of understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceedingly greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul is thankful for the the, the believers in Ephesus, and he makes mention of them in their prayers, and he's praying that God would continue to give them wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him and giving their eyes understanding, being enlightened, which can only happen if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go over here to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As I read to you from Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus himself said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. God gives those who really want to know him understanding, and those that don't, he's going to hide it from them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we read, For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, if we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may know the things which we have been freely given to us by God, these things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual, those who have received Jesus, judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And because of that, we have the light to understand who God is and the mind of Christ. In verse 21 of Exodus 14, going back there, we have an interesting word here. It says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind. The word wind there is ruach, the breath of God. 
the breath of God. This wasn't just any sort of easterly. This is, this is God. God is doing all of this, okay? And all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The word stretched here in the Hebrew is natah. It means to stretch out, to spread out, to stretch forth, to turn down in descending manner. This verb is in the imperfect form, which that means is that it's an incomplete condition, or rather a continuous, unfinished action. In other words, Moses would be continually having his rod or staff in his hand, be continually waving his staff back and forth, up and down, with the water before him retreating back and walling up on the sides. This shows that Moses would be leading the way, not pointing to it and saying, okay, now go. He'd be continually doing this, okay? He'd be doing this as he continues to walk through the Red Sea. It's not a completed action where he does it once and all of a sudden, and there it is. You could see the light at the end and you can see the shoreline over there. No, he had to continually do this. And we know this because in Hebrews 11.29, it says, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Well, what is faith? Well, we're told in Hebrews 11. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a testimony. If the children of Israel, as they went down into the Red Sea, was able to see an opening all the way to the very end, where would their faith be? They could already see. Oh, we'll be able to make a look. It's already open all the way to the other end. But if they have to look at this wall of water in front of them continually be pushed back, the huge wall of water on both sides, yeah, they would have to have faith that the water would continue to retreat as they continue to walk into the Red Sea. Now, I was talking to uh, someone earlier today, and he made a really good point. He said, you know, he heard some other expositor teach a long time ago, a military commander kind of a guy, that in order to have two million people, two to three million people, and able to get across, because they're crossing all night, probably about two miles or so, that this, that as, as, as um, Moses is going back and forth, they would have had to have an area about a half mile to be able to go you know, to, for them all to get through uh, during that night. And so the amount of water that needs to go up, there's all sorts of different people said in this area that, you know, it goes down about 800 feet. And then another place where they're saying that they went through, it would have had to have gone down 1,500 feet because that's the topography on the, on the bottom of the ocean floor there, that if they went here at Nueva Beach over to the other side, that you're talking about 800 to 1,000 feet deep at its lowest point. So you're going way down like this. Well, if you're going to displace all that water, how, how, how big were those walls of water? How big were those walls of water? I mean, I understand God can do what God does and then disperse it all the way through the sea. So maybe it's only 100 feet or it could have been 1,000 feet on each side. And, and, and that would have been so awesome to be able to see. And so in verse 22... So in order to do it by faith, there's no way he's continued to pushing the, the, the water forward as they keep going forward. Um, in verse 22, it says, So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The word wall here in the Hebrew is chomah, and it means walls that protect a city anywhere from 30 to 100 feet or higher. Okay? Because, you know, God can do whatever he wants to do. Here's a picture right here. I love this picture. I love it because you have a squid over there on the left or an octopus. And, and, and you, you have that uh, dolphin just kicking it saying, isn't this great? You know, jumping out. And then there's a little bit of a, either a huge shark or a whale or something on the, on the side. But you, have you ever thought of that as you're, as you're going through that? Is there, is, you know, you just, you just see some marine animal just kind of going by checking you out as you're going. I mean, it would have been awesome, you know. And I say you let your your mind go crazy with it because God is that awesome. He, he can do whatever. But I love this picture because it shows him going forward and there's still a wall of water in front of him. You know, it doesn't show it going all the way to the end. And so that's why I chose that one. Um, 
Here's something else, because when you saw the, the little clip from the Ten Commandments, you saw people on stretchers that they were carrying and people on crutches and stuff like that. But in Psalm 105, verse 37, it says, He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there is none feeble among his tribes, speaking of going, crossing the Red Sea. So what that tells me is that there was no one injured, that there was no one sick, that God gave them the strength for them to go over uh, without uh, being carried on stretchers and, and things like that. And so there was none feeble among his tribes. None were feeble or weak among them. Um, and so there was none crossing over that were sick. That means even the old people were in good health. No one was limping or walking on crutches. Everyone was in good shape and they could make it on their own. And so, again, God's caused this east wind all night. It took them all night to, to do that. Um, and then in verse 24, it says, Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of the fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. So they're now going down. And he took off their chariot wheels, you know, so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So somehow is going down there as they've been going down there. They're finally now realizing, you know, their God is fighting for them. We need to turn back. But God's not going to allow for them to do that. And in verse 26, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, so they were going all night, it was at the very end of, 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 of uh, dawn, that all of a sudden they all kind of came up at that point. And it says, uh, when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned, covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. There's no mud, dry land. And so uh, in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Again, it is to to emphasize how impressive those walls would have been of water, just how impressive that would have been. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So many of them wafted up on their side there. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. It's noteworthy that the New Testament describes Jesus saving work on the cross as an exodus. Not long after Jesus was born and visited by the wise men from the east, that God told Joseph to flee to Egypt. There eventually they returned to fulfill the words of what Matthew, quoting Hosea 11.1. 1. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, it says, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. He's quoting from Hosea 11, verse 1. And originally this is spoken of Israel being God's son coming out of Egypt. However, there is a deep spiritual connection with what happens with Israel under Moses and what would later happen with Jesus and his work being the Christ. In Luke chapter 9, I want you to see this in verse 31 that we're going to have up here. It says, uh, who appeared in glory and spork, and spork, <laughs> spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and who comes and visits him? Moses and Elijah. And they're going to speak to him about his decease, how he is going to die. The interesting thing word is the word deceased in the Greek. Dun, dun, dun. I could have sworn I saw, sent it to you. Is it still coming? Is it coming? I could have sworn I sent it to you. There it is. What does that say? Exodus. We're going to talk to you about your exodus, which speaks of your departure. Wasn't that awesome to just have you hang in there until just created that? 
So Jesus is making a connection here. Jesus is the new Moses worthy of greater honor who leads God's people out of the bondage of sin into the promised land of eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul tells us this. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul makes a connection between the exodus And baptism. For the Israelites, the passing through the Red Sea was a type of baptism. For Israel, the end of the old life was bondage in Egypt, going into the water, the Red Sea coming out in their new relationship with God. Egypt is a type. It represents the world or the flesh. Egypt is a type of slavery to the flesh of the world. Coming out of Egypt is a new relationship with God by water baptism. We see the old life of slavery, flesh to be dead, to be over. We enter into a new relationship with God. It is the same today in our relationship with God. Baptism symbolizes our new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's an act that identifies us all going through the same experience in Jesus receiving the work that he did for us on the cross. Just as going through the Red Sea represented all into a new relationship with God, so does baptism today represent all of us in our new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Baptism is an outward confirmation of an inward transformation. It symbolizes our bearing our old self, just like Israel going in and their old self being buried, which represents Egypt. Okay, being buried in the sea. It now represents for us bearing our old self, coming up in newness of life in our new relationship in the Lord. Although the Israelites believed God before the Red Sea crossing, it was a baptism of the Red Sea that proved for all those around them that they belonged to God. This is what happens when we get baptized. We are saying to everyone around us that we belong to Christ. Christ. 